Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law from Australia and around the world. This week, antitrust hipsters go mainstream. We're talking to Betty McCutchua, an alumna of our competition and regulation group and going on to very big things. She's been looking at the evolving role and goals of antitrust in South Africa, at the OECD, and in Australia. And now we're at a point where we have the hipster antitrust movement saying, but well, hang on. What we are seeing is that markets actually don't solve correct. What we are seeing is that we're seeing markets that are focused on producing the next billionaire of the world. You know, we are seeing markets that seek to create monopolists and that are sort of leaving out the smaller players in markets. We'll hear more about that in just a minute. But first, Matt, tell us what's going down around the grounds. Well, we've had a rare bit of luck with timing. Last time, you remember, we predicted that Treasury was about to release the third interim report of the Digital Platform Services Inquiry. Hmm. And just a couple of days after that, they very helpfully did. Is that like a stopped clock being right twice a day? That's right. Or if you're a hipster, it's like an old fob watch that you might carry around in your sparring. Or a grandfather clock that you push around in a wheelbarrow, perhaps. Yeah, you've got it. And in the latest report, the ACCC has asked for the power to make sure that Android devices will show you a choice screen where you can choose between Google and other search engines, just like they have in Europe. And it's also proposed removing the verb Google from the Macquarie Dictionary, although I'm just being told now that I, I've made that up. You've made that up. Is Google even in the dictionary? It is. But of course, to make room for it, they had to take out the word gullible. That one is so old that even the hipsters won't touch it. I'm sorry. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. And the ACCC has also asked for some more powers to help lower possible barriers to entry in search, which it says could be like bundling search with other goods and services, or even paying to be the default search engine on a device or a browser. We said last week that Apple gets paid billions of dollars to use Google as its default. Would it be worried? It'll be paying attention, I think. The ACCC says that it's seen details of that deal between Apple and Google, and it confirms that the numbers are in the upper range of the public estimates we've heard, of 8 to $12 billion. And that's more or less consistent as well with the DOJ claim that the deal makes up to 50 to 20% of Apple's net income each year. That's a lot of bread. It is, though I think we're calling it kale now in the coffee shops. Ooh, very hipster, very gluten-free. Anyway, if Apple wasn't getting that money from Google, then it might be tempted to go ahead and develop its own search engine, and that will make things interesting. We're just talking about Australia for now, though, aren't we? We are, but the payments to Apple are also part of the DOJ case against Google in the US. They haven't been part of the European Commission's many actions against Google so far, but that might change. The general court we hear is about to decide on Google's appeal against the commission's decision in 2018 about that same sort of issue, and also against the 5 billion euro fine, of course. So we'll see what happens after that. And the ACCC has said it wants to align with international enforcement efforts. So the jurisdictions might all coordinate on something like this, I suppose. What else is going on? Well, there's been a fair bit of action on the cartel front. Australia has its first criminal conviction of an individual for cartel conduct. You might remember that late last year, Alkaloids Australia and its former export manager were charged with 33 cartel offences involving the sale of scopolamine and butyl bromide. But you might know that better as a higher C butyl bromide. Oh, might I? It just sounds like an unproven COVID treatment that everyone's weird uncle has decided is better than a jab. It could turn out <laughs> to be one of those two. But it's also the active ingredient in a few medicines that are used to treat stomach pain. I've got the 
ACCC press release here, and it says, cartel conduct makes us sick to our stomach. And we've had a gut full of this kind of thing. <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, I'm afraid it doesn't. But the former export manager did plead guilty to three counts the other week, and he's been committed to the federal court for sentence. The case against the company itself is still going on in the local court. So a few episodes ago, we spoke with Kate Morgan, SC, about how hard it can be to persuade a jury to convict someone of criminal cartel conduct, as we saw in the country care case. So I wonder how that played into the prosecutor's decision to accept a guilty plea on just three of those charges. You'd think it would be a factor at this stage. The press release says he's also admitted his guilt in respect of seven further offences, but he hasn't pleaded to those ones. So he's admitted guilt, but not pleaded guilty. What does that mean? Well, it may mean that he's cooperating with the authorities and could be giving evidence against the company. Okay, I guess we'll wait and see. Yeah. Closer to home, the ACCC is taking civil action against two Sydney roof tiling businesses and their sole directors, who allegedly rigged the outcome of two roofing tenders, one for a college at Sydney Uni and one for a residential project in Bellevue Hill. Which roof's bigger, do you reckon, that? That's a good question. It'll be closer, I think. (laughs) In this press release, the ACCC said, Cartel conduct gives us the shingles. We hit the roof when we found about this big rigging. Oh, they really slated them, didn't they? I did. And this caught my eye for a couple of reasons. One, it's another example of the ACCC wanting to make really clear that it's going after cartel conduct right up and down the economy. So these are small operators. There's not that much money involved, you'd think. But of course, we're talking about per se prohibitions here, and the ACCC is going to pursue them. But not criminally this time. No, and that seems fair enough too. So these businesses don't have legal teams or compliance officers. And I'm sure that just about every small business person has had this brainwave. Like, why are we all killing ourselves, competing with each other here? Why can't we just get along? And historically, I suppose they would have been part of the Guild of Slaters or whatever it was. Mm, It's not really an excuse though. No, it's not. But I guess that alongside the competitive streak that most of us have, there's also, I guess, this human instinct for cooperation that we need to recognise if we want to really get the message across. See, that's why everyone should play football. (laughs) That's right. What was the other reason that caught your eye? Well, the other reason is that one of these guys is my roof guy. Your roof guy? Yeah. I have a very old clapped out slate roof. And, you know, every time there's a bit of rain or wind, I need to get them around to stick a couple of tiles back on. But you don't live in Bellevue Hill. Do you? No, and I don't think my roof would be worth cartelling over. And I was thinking, I mean, I'm sure that I've used plenty of Amcor boxes in my time and maybe even an NSK ball bearing. But this time, it all feels a little bit personal. Yeah, my car probably has a Yazaki car part in it too. Maybe you should switch to Colorbond. Look, I would love to, but the council won't let me. I hear the hipsters are going for thatched roofs anyway these days. Well, there has to be a guild of thatchers. <laughs> well, thanks, Matt. Now seems like a good time to hear from someone who really knows what they're talking about, though, right? It sure does. <laughs> uh, I spoke to Betty Mkachwa recently, and she says that the hipster antitrust movement and the history and thinking behind it are likely to have a real impact on competition law from now on. Let's take a listen. Today, I'm talking with Betty Mkachwa in our competition and regulation group, who's been looking at hipster antitrust and the consumer welfare standard in Australia and overseas. Betty, I love the sound of an antitrust hipster. It sounds a bit of a paradox, really, like I suppose a groovy lawyer or something like that. But what do people mean when they talk about hipster antitrust? It is a very interesting term. I'm not sure if the hipster antitrust lawyers and economists would prefer to be called the new Brandis movement as opposed to hipster antitrust, but I think it just really represents a new school of thought in competition law, moving away from what most would call the Chicago and post-Chicago sort of school of thought in terms of approach to competition law and competition law enforcement. 
it represents a much bigger movement that's really directing how competition law is being viewed currently and where competition law is is going. Yeah. It kind of has a sense that it's looking backwards at the same time as it's looking forwards. What can you tell us about the way that antitrust and these various schools have developed over the last century or so? I mean, I think there's been quite a lot of interesting development in the history of antitrust as a whole. There's one exciting quote by Eleanor Fox. She says, at its birth, antitrust was a discipline and tool for the outsider, for people without power. It has been seduced by beautiful, elegant, but unfitting economic assumptions. So I think it's a great place to start the conversation. I think it sort of reflects the aspirations of antitrust in the US, which is sort of where competition law originated and the intention of actually having antitrust laws at that time and what they represented, breaking up monopolies and breaking up the trusts that actually had significant control over the US economy at the time and opening up markets to make room for smaller players. So those are sort of, you know, the values and aspirations of antitrust in the beginning. And over time, we've obviously had different schools of thought that have come in and influenced the direction of what antitrust law or competition law is and what it should regulate and, you know, what should be the confines of the competition authorities and going into thinking about whether we want regulators to intervene more in markets or we actually trust that markets can function in a way that is competitive and that benefits consumers. And that we should just allow markets to really self-correct and regulators should minimize their intervention because the intervention can actually give rise to consumer issues. And now we're at a point where we have the hipster antitrust movement saying, but well, hang on. What we are seeing is that markets actually don't self-correct. What we are seeing is that we're seeing markets that are focused on producing the next billionaire of the world. You know, we are seeing markets that seek to create monopolists and that are sort of leaving out the smaller players in markets. And actually, maybe we do care about the smaller players in the markets. And we're also seeing conversations about consumers as well and how consumer harm might not be something you only measure according to price and quality of product. Maybe we now care about data. Maybe we now care about privacy. And also conversations about how whether consumers themselves actually know what it is that they should care about. Maybe regulators are in a better position to look after consumers because maybe consumers can't look after themselves. So I think we're really seeing an evolution, which also feels like just reflecting back to the earlier values that have always been there. So you will see in the debate, especially in the academic debate, that there's quite a lot of pulling back and saying, oh, well, there's nothing new about this hipster antitrust or these new brandies scholars. They're just really going back to what we have always known. So, yeah. So we're talking about consumer welfare, and that seems to have been the dominant position in antitrust law for the last few decades, at least, and has not been often criticized until recently. And the idea of putting consumer welfare generally ahead of 
market structure, potentially inefficient small businesses has some appeal to it. Where do the problems arise and what's sort of driven the new questioning of these principles in recent times? I think the consumer welfare standard has obviously also evolved over time based on the thinking that was sort of changing from the different schools of thought. There's sort of obviously the distinction that is always spoken of between consumer welfare. And then you also have the total welfare standard, which is seen as a much more broader standard, which would be concerned about consumers, but also the welfare of producers in the market. But we have also seen some competition jurisdictions, especially the smaller and maybe not so smaller anymore developing countries, really taking a different approach and direction to competition law and to the standard of welfare that they apply. For example, South Africa, one would say, is a much more open-minded jurisdiction when it comes to the standard of welfare. But you see South Africa caring more about a range of other issues, such as inequality, such as distribution of wealth that link to race, and also caring more about smaller players. And you also sort of see the elements of total welfare in other jurisdictions as well, even though they might not expressly admit to that or embody those values fully. But I think what would be more relevant to most people in terms of why we care so much about the consumer welfare standard now is because of everything that's been happening in big tech, where we now know that firms don't just compete on price and the quality of goods and services and the choice that's available to consumers but they compete for data. They compete on using consumer data to offer new products that are obviously exciting for all of us as consumers that we absolutely love and get to enjoy now, especially working from home, being able to do a lot of things virtually and also just connecting with people. Social media has become very important, especially in the times of lockdown. But as always, you do have to think about whether they act in the interest of competition overall and in the interest of consumers. So you will always have competition regulators looking into their practices and and conduct. And obviously the one, I guess, big event or you'd say piece of research that sparked this whole debate on the consumer welfare standard is the Lina Khan paper looking into Amazon, the Amazon Antitrust Paradox 2017 paper. But I think for me, this is a debate that has sort of always been there in competition law, sort of never goes away. It's the debate that when you study competition law, you sort of always start with the goals of competition law. But I think it's important to highlight that there are maybe two spheres of it. I think generally consumer welfare as we understand it and assessing what would be the most appropriate economic goals of competition law and you know what we want to use as a measure of competition and consumer harm generally. But also it links to the issues that other jurisdictions have looked at, such as inequality in the South African context. Yeah. So we can have a look at the consumer welfare standard itself and ask whether that can be expanded. So going beyond price and output to the other dimensions of welfare, so choice of products, innovation, things like that, which aren't strictly 
and perhaps not as easily measured as price and output. But it sounds like you're talking about going even further than that and, and talking about the welfare of, of people generally, not necessarily as consumers, but just as citizens, people living in society. I just wonder what you think the basis for regulating those aspects through antitrust would be, as opposed to, say, dealing with them through some other legislation or theory. So I think the first thing to recognize is that competition law is working. I think everyone sort of sees competition law or competition policy as at least one industrial policy instrument that is doing very well. Competition authorities working very effectively to regulate markets. And I think the competition law is doing something. Whilst people generally see other areas of regulation as not to be really doing a lot. I mean, I think they are doing a lot, but maybe the work that they do is not as visible to people as the work of competition authorities. So there is, I guess, that element or tendency to want to use competition law to resolve a range of issues. I think it's acceptable to use competition law for some of those issues because competition law does have an impact on how markets operate. And I think that is important, especially the sort of rule setting role of competition policy and the role of competition regulators there. I think it will be useful to give an example of South Africa. So you obviously had the apartheid regime, which was exclusionary on the basis of race, which means that the economic policies that underpin the South African economy were exclusionary. And with the introduction of democracy and, you know, the new government coming into power, the need to restructure the competition law and the competition law institutions was obviously important. And in doing that work, there was also recognition that markets need to be accessible to everyone and everyone needs to be able to participate in the markets as they desire to whether as consumers, whether as employers or employees or owners of equity. So what you sort of then have to do there is that you need to think about the role that competition law has played, first of all, in creating some of the monopolies that existed at the time and some of which continue to exist. And you have to set rules using competition law on how people are able to participate in the economy. And I think it's very important to also recognize that competition law is and is one industrial policy in a framework of broader industrial policies. And there are some issues that may impact on competition and how markets function, but can also be resolved better through other industrial policies. But I love actually love this quote by Ariel Ezraki. So I'm he says, while the idea of a stable, predictable, and economically based antitrust discipline is in all of our interests, these traits are not inherent in the law. And I think that's a very important one because we tend to find ourselves debating and resisting what competition law is and the role that competition law can play. Maybe we should not resist and try to make competition law a very pure, we shouldn't be very puristic about what competition law is, but maybe we should actually spend more time and energy debating what it is that we want to do with competition law and what actually can be done realistically through competition law as opposed to resisting. It certainly seems like the origins of competition law weren't at all pure. They were very messy and lots of conflicting ideas at the time. 
and trying to impose some purity on that might be a difficult thing to do. And it also seems like one of the reasons behind the initial antitrust legislation was this sort of fear about bigness, about corporations becoming big and that having impacts on different parts of society, including but not limited to the economy. And I guess now we are seeing companies that are unquestionably big and perhaps bigger than ones we've seen before. And I think people have some concerns about that. And maybe that's why they're looking to competition law to to provide an answer to those fears again, as, as they did at the beginning. You've mentioned South Africa, which is a really interesting jurisdiction. What do you think is happening in Australia and is likely to happen over the immediate term in response to these trends? Australia's interesting. So I think maybe we'll just sort of, let's discuss it in the context of major laws. And I think that's interesting because that's where we have seen quite a bit of debate on what major laws should and shouldn't do. In Australia, obviously, you have, at least from you know what the ACCC guidelines say and the views that are put out there by Rod Sims, is obviously that Australia follows a traditionalist consumer welfare standard and focuses predominantly on the economic goals, the traditional economic goals of competition law, and that there isn't really much scope for other non-economic objectives. But some of that doesn't really align with some of the work that we see the ACCC do. Maybe that's because there's a consumer law aspect to the work of the ACCC, and there's quite a lot of focus as well on smaller businesses and protecting smaller businesses. But I think what's also very interesting in the context of Australia is the public benefit test in the merger laws that could be or element could be used to consider other non-economic objectives because it is sort of left open and there's room to think about, oh, do we care about considerations that maybe South Africa would care about, for example, if they were relevant for Australia? Or do we care about other objectives that are rising in the big tech space, you know, about privacy issues, about data on the proposed changes? I think one element that's interesting is how the ACCC wants to be able to consider as part of a merger ancillary agreements between major parties in the assessment of mergers. And I think this will be very interesting for big tech in the context of what's been happening in the US, where the FTC has been requesting information from parties that are information and details of arrangements, which are not really specific to the merger that they're assessing, but also sort of seek to get information on the practices relating to labor practices and things like that. But I think what one important thing to say, as we are seeing a lot of competition jurisdictions harmonize their thinking, is that it's very important to think locally, to think about what's happening locally and to always go back to that. And this, I think, goes to what Ariel Izraki talks about when he says competition law is a sponge. It really absorbs, you know, the values and the economic context and history of the specific country, which South Africa really embodies well, that we draw a lot from other jurisdictions, but there's a lot that is local, which means the focus of the competition law to some extent needs to follow what's happening locally. And I think Australia, in as much as 
we are being influenced by what's happening elsewhere, it's important to actually think about what is important for the local markets and also how these new regulations might impact how things work locally. Some things may be beneficial, some things might not be beneficial. So I know there's a keen interest from some competition regulators and some jurisdictions to actually take up gender issues through competition law, especially in Canada, having sponsored the OECD project on competition law and gender. And I know in the South African context as well, the focus has been more on race, but also there's a realization that actually gender is a very important aspect of the inequality there. So maybe that's another jurisdiction that is likely to take up that issue. But yeah, the the OECD project really is looking to build evidence and research more um, the coloration between gender and competition law and how competition law can be used to prioritize gender and in order to address gender inequality, whether that is how we view markets, how we define markets in a merger, whether we need to think about the gender differences, especially when you think about, you know, how some products have a pink text to them. But also I think in the South African context, thinking about how you can use competition law to advance women in the same way that you use competition law to advance historically disadvantaged individuals. So maybe people shouldn't be surprised if there's a merger and they're being asked about the gendered outcomes of their merger or even prohibited practices, actually, because in South Africa, you do have prohibited practices provisions that look at the impact of the conduct on historically disadvantaged individuals, maybe gender will be the next consideration. So something to think about, nothing hectic that's happening in that space now is more of a, some background work, building evidence, but it's something to keep in mind as well. Well, thanks, Betty. These are really interesting issues and certainly worth a lot more thought than the hipster label might suggest. And it'll be fascinating to see how things develop here and overseas into the future. Thanks so much for explaining that to us. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. That's very interesting. Now, you've also written about the hipster antitrust movement in the latest edition of your Not on a Wink newsletter, haven't you? I have, yeah. I mean, Betty's done a lot more work on this than I have, but uh, I've tried to add a bit more background detail while at the same time being a lot more superficial. Okay. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you. It's very interesting, though, that back in 2018, Rod seems very publicly denied that he was an antitrust hipster. He said, and I quote, I want to be clear that I am opposed to introducing broader public interest considerations into the core of competition law enforcement. So in the light of history, with everything that's happened on big tech, he finds himself in the company of hipsters, I would have thought, doesn't he, in wanting to regulate them more closely? Is he a closet hipster in denial, do you think, Matt? Look, I think you'd still say that general competition law can have a real impact on broader issues by dealing with market failures and that kind of thing. But that things like environmental protection and equality of any kind are probably better served by specific and tailored laws. But of course, the ACCC does a lot that isn't just competition law. There's the consumer protection side for a start and the way that it looks at public benefits in authorizations, as, as Betty mentioned. That's true. And a big part of the digital platforms inquiry was about public interest journalism, which I think goes a long way beyond consumer work and is really about the health and strength of our democracy. 
Although that's probably down to Nick Xenophon. Maybe there's your hipster. Look, I agree. And with the new powers and the ex-ante sector regulation that may come out of the ACCC's further inquiries, it's really starting to look at a lot of the same things as the hipsters are internationally, and even leading the hipsters in some of these areas. So I think that although he's not technically an antitrust hipster, he may be a kind of honorary hipster in a more practical way. Well, Mr. Sims, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the pod to elaborate. So consider yourself invited. Or if you'd prefer, we could come to your Christmas barbecue, I guess. Thanks very much for asking. Yeah, I'll bring the longitudinal protein tubes. Good. But first, tell us what's coming up in your crystal ball, Matt, or is it your lava lamp this week? Oh, it's actually one of those magic eight balls, but it's broken, of course. Oh, don't count on it? Is that the one? Ask again later. So the eight ball is not all that informative, actually, but it's got a hazy kind of prediction about the future of the criminal cartel process here in Australia. One of the really interesting things about that process has been that cases start in the very colourful local court or magistrate's court, where billion dollar corporations and our most senior barristers have to mix it up with small time drug dealers and, of course, the duty lawyers. Mm, And that's because they all need to go through the standard criminal process, which finishes with them being committed to trial in the federal court. That's right. And it can take quite a long time with a kind of inevitable feeling about it. The committal process used to be about testing the prosecution's case and protecting the accused, but it's really become more of a formality. I've got the Commonwealth DPP's annual report here, and it says that last year, 100% of the defended committal hearings resulted in a committal. Well, that's a pretty good batting average. Very Don Bradman. It sure is. There's a little bit of rounding. It looks like there was just one case where someone was discharged and not committed, which might make it even more Don Bradman. Yes. (laughs) And the report also flags that going forward and with the consent of the accused, the director will consider starting proceedings directly in the federal court on indictment instead of going through the lower court process as I do now. Hasn't the DPP always been able to do that? They have, but their policy has always been to only do it where the accused is pleading guilty. And this must mean that they might go straight to the federal court with a plea of not guilty if everyone agrees. So that might reduce at least one of the problems with criminal cartel trials, which is how long they take to get going. It might. And I was at a conference earlier this year which had the Chatham House rule, so I can't say who said this. But someone who would definitely know pointed out that committals in criminal cartel cases can take years. It's hard to justify the different processes that apply in each of the jurisdictions around Australia. And the pre-trial procedures of the federal court can do everything the committal process is supposed to do, and perhaps even better. I've just read that the case against the banks involved in that ANZ share placement has been narrowed quite a bit since it got to the federal court. That's right. So it was in the local court for two and a half years before it was committed to the federal court last December. And since then, the CDPP has reduced the number of incidents it's looking at from three down to one. And it's just more recently dropped all the charges against ANZ and its representatives. It's the incredible shrinking case. Well, honey, I shrunk the case. That is a great film reference, Maya. Oh, thank you. Now, you're meant to say it's like that La Liga match in 2007 when Osasuna got four red cards and had to finish the match with seven players. Right, look, I was just about to. There was also, apparently, some Malay in Argentina where both teams were sent off and everyone got a red card including the subs and the coaches. But we don't want to suggest that that's what's going on to happen here. Um, You just Googled that, didn't you? I don't recognize that as a verb. I'm not that gullible. (laughs) Anyway, it's easy to imagine with all this going on that there would be defendants who are only too happy to be going straight to the federal court in the future. Well, we'll see what happens with that one. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes. And we've got some great guests and topics lined up in the weeks ahead, including Peter Waters on regulating data and artificial intelligence, and Charles Corey on important changes to the unfair contract terms regime. But for now, 
it's time for us to pack up our cassette tapes, hop on our penny-farthing bikes, and seriously think about the evolving goals of competition law. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review, and tell your friends. They can listen ironically if they want. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. <laughs>